Well, like I said, this is our, um, our sanctuary is so beautiful. And, um, and I love Christmas, everything about Christmas. In fact, the day after Thanksgiving, we normally go and we buy all of our Christmas stuff. We cook a big dinner. We start cranking out Christmas movies. And, uh, and our first Christmas movie, the one we start every Christmas season off, is Christmas Vacation. Have you guys seen this movie? And, uh, and I love this movie. And uh, Jim, you can show this slide. This is, uh, this is uh, Uncle Eddie. And, um, and I, I, I love Christmas Vacation because I just see so much of myself in, uh, in Chevy Chase's character. I mean, he just loves Christmas. He loves his family. He loves being together. You know, back now, everyone, like, makes their house all cool and Christmassy with all the lights and stuff. But back when this movie came out, nobody did. And he, you know, put 10,000 lights up all over his, his house. And he invited his parents and his in-laws. And, uh, and, and you could just see, like... In his mind, he has this picture of how he wants Christmas to be. And all you have to do is Google, you know, Christmas dinner. And you see the big turkey and the soft glow of lights. And you're like, this is going to be so beautiful. But we all know that as soon as we actually bring our real family into the mix, um, it's never that way, you know. And, and you see the conflict he has with his parents and his in-laws. And, you know, his in-laws drink too much. And they're, I mean, it's just a disaster. And uh, but you're like, they're all getting along until Uncle Eddie shows up, right? And they get the lights all. I don't know if you've seen this movie in a long time, but they get the lights all going up. And he's, like, thanking everybody. And he gets to the end. And here's Uncle Eddie. And uh, Uncle Eddie, you know, he lives in an RV. And his family is just disgusting on every level. And um, all of us, I think, if we're honest, we have an Uncle Eddie. Maybe it's you. If it's you, let's work on that, okay? But all of us in our family, we have this Uncle Eddie who's in our life. And they're our family. And in our normal life, we would never invite them to dinner. They would never be with our children. They would never be in our world. But for some reason, right, we are connected to them. They are family. And because they're family, you know, you let them park their, your RV in, uh, in your lawn I mean, for this Christmas season. And there's this weird thing about family. And so as, I, as we're getting ready for Christmas, as we think about, oh, we're getting our, our, you know, our trees up, and we're decorating, we're imagining dinner. It's like, Christmas is so great. I think if we're also honest, Christmas just brings this reality that our families are just broken and dysfunctional and a mess. And we imagine who's going to be sitting around the Christmas table. Sometimes like, oh, that is just going to be awful. I cannot believe I have to spend a few hours with those people. And, and the anxiety of that is just so much. But I think what's even more brutal is as we get ready for Christmas and we think about who's going to be around that table, sometimes we think some of our family's not even going to make that cut. Things between us and that person have become so estranged that they don't even come to Christmas anymore. And what's interesting is when, you're, when there's just normal brokenness and fighting and anger, like at least you're interacting and fighting and angry. I think what's really heartbreaking is when you've kind of like drawn the line in the sand and you've cut them off and you're not even talking with them. And uh, so you're in for a treat, because we're going to look at Christmas and, uh, and talk about some family dysfunction. How fun is that? Um, but I just want to show you, uh, like I said, it's Christmas. We're going through our Christmas movies, and so we also watched Home Alone. And as I watched Home Alone, um, I just was compelled by this uh, heartbreaking scene right in the middle of the film. So enjoy this. You want to know the real reason why I'm here right now? Sure. I came to hear my granddaughter sing. And I can't come and hear her tonight. You got plans? No. I'm not welcome. At church? Oh, you're always welcome at church. I'm not welcome with my son. Years back, before you and your family moved on the block, I had an argument with my son. How old is he? Well, he's grown up. We lost our tempers. And I said I didn't care to see him anymore. He said the same. And we haven't spoken to each other since. 
If you miss him, why don't you call him? I'm afraid if I call him, he won't talk to me. How do you know? I don't know. I'm just afraid he won't. No offense, but aren't you a little old to be afraid? You can be a little old for a lot of things. You're never too old to be afraid. That's true. I've always been afraid of our basement. It's dark, there's weird stuff down there, and it smells funny, that sort of thing. It's bothered me for years. The basements are like that. Then I made myself go down there to do some laundry, and I found out it's not so bad. All this time I've been worrying about it, but if you turn on the lights, it's no big deal. What's your point? My point is you should call your son. What if he won't talk to me? At least you'll know. Then you can stop worrying about it. And he won't have to be afraid anymore. I don't care how mad I was. I talked to my dad, especially around the holidays. I don't know. Just give it a shot for your granddaughter anyway. I'm sure she misses you and the presents. <laughs> well, so as much as Christmas is beautiful, I just think it is really difficult to get away from the reality that Christmas forces the issue of how things are with our family. And if you, in any part of your being, have this hope and this picture and this dream of how families should be around the nice Google image uh, table with the turkey and the trees with a soft glow, if there's any part of you in your heart and you're like, ah, that is how it should be. And at the same time, you have this experience of people that should not be around that table or who will not be around that table, and you've experienced kind of the really awful depth of family brokenness. If you've experienced either of those two things, then you have to know that your experience is right smack in the middle of the Christmas story. Your experience is right smack in the middle of the biblical story. Because here's the deal. We are all made in the image of God. We're not accidents. We all just aren't individual. We aren't different. We all don't come from different places and different backgrounds and different cultures and different parts of the world. That is all true. But at the end of the day, we are all made in the image of God, which means that we have this stamp of who God is. And God made us. We are his unique and special creation. And more than being his unique and special creation, we are made to be an intimate, intimate relationship with each other. God made Adam and Eve, and they frolicked naked. I could not even imagine. That would be the most awkward thing ever. But for the picture is not just that they're frolicking na- uh, naked. The picture is that they are intimate. There is no shame. There is no barrier. There is nothing between Adam and Eve. There is nothing between Adam and Eve and God that they would spend their days in intimate relationship walking together. Because God made us in the image of God, we are made to be with family. We are made to have our hearts knit together with one another. That is how we are made. But the story in, the, in Scripture is that Adam and Eve, they sinned, and because they sinned, uh, there, was this, there was this break with God that right after they eat the apple, God says, where are you? Like they used to walk through the garden together every day, and now God says, where are you? Because there was this break. There's this broken relationship, and Adam and Eve find themselves hiding. They're like, we're naked, and we're, you're going to be mad at us, and there's shame, and from there on out, the relationship is broken. And uh, Adam could have copped up and said, oh, I screwed up. You told me to do this. I am so sorry. Please forgive me. But instead, he does what we all do and goes, it's her fault. She goes, it's someone else's fault. And we all just pass the blame and pass the blame. And because no one copped to it, we pass the blame. The relationship is broken. They're kicked out of the garden. And our relationship with God has been broken ever since. 
And even worse, because God's invisible, it's hard to connect with him, but our relationship with each other has been broken ever since. From that point on, all of human history has been filled with warfare and death and murder and animosity and estrangement. That's the history of the whole human race. And yet, isn't that funny? Even though that's our history, we all know in the depths of our being that we are made for so much more. And so as we get ready for Christmas, um, and we're in the season of Advent, we realize and we recognize that the King comes with love. That God longs for us to be back in relationship with him. God longs for us to be back in relationship with our family who we're estranged from, back in relationship with people who we have broken relationships with. That the king comes with love. And it is true, we offended God, and God could have totally come with a giant lightning bolt and set us right. But instead, he came with love. Uh, the memory verse that my very first one I ever learned, John 3.16, it's the first one you learned in Awanas, used to be on football things. Uh, if you know, why don't you say it with me, because I didn't even make a slide, right? It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life, right? The whole sum of the story of God, for God so loved the world, the king comes with love. We have all broken something in our parents' houses. I love what these kids are saying. They broke a mug and a plate and lamps and different things. But the truth is, if you're a kid and you break something, you have no way to fix it. You have no way. You can't earn money. You can, even if it's a $5 plate, you can't fix it because you did this offense. It is broken. And the only way to solve it is for the parent to do something, to intervene somehow. And we have offended God in such a way, there's such a barrier between us and God. The only solution is for God to intervene. And the way that God intervened is through love. And so this Christmas, we're going to take a look at this idea that the king comes with love, that the king has made a way for us to be back in relationship with him and to be back in relationship with each other. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. Or if you have it on your phone, or it's going to be on the screen. All right. So here we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verses 18, seven, I'm going to start at 17, sorry. It says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, as he has committed us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Sorry, God made him who had no sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. What an incredible statement. And as we're getting ready for Advent, I would just like to propose that this passage is saying that in Christ, God has reconciled us to himself. In Christmas, God has reconciled us to himself. There's a huge chasm between us and God. That's just how, it's, how it is. And we love Christmas. I mean, it's beautiful, and it's, there's all sorts of traditions and rituals around it. But it's Christmas because Jesus shows up on earth to make things right, to come up with this plan. And I love those little British kids. You know, he didn't come with an army. He didn't come with a story. He didn't come ready to take over the world. He didn't come as a mighty king that the whole world's going to must bow to. He came as a little baby. And this is just the beginning of the story because the 
I mean, it's precious and it's beautiful, but that's what makes the story powerful is that baby, right, becomes a man who teaches, who says this is how it should be, and ultimately dies on the cross for our sins. The reason why Christians keep telling that story is because he didn't just die and go, see, I, I died for you. When he died, he took on sin, right? When those kids, when you break a plate, that $5, you don't just go, oh, it's not a big deal. It's a $5 cost. That brokenness, that forgiveness costs something. Our sin and brokenness costs something that we can't pay, and Jesus takes it. He takes all of our sin on him so that we're made right with God. And what's funny is we in the church, we hate talking about sin. In fact, we don't even talk about it anymore. In fact, I was a little nervous to even bring it up right now. Um, But why not? It's Christmas. Let's just talk about it, because I think if we can own our sin, there is so much peace. There is so much freedom. Now, the first thing that most of us do uh, um, when we think about sin is that we cover it up. And um, you just go, oh, I'm such a sinful person. Oh, I'm such an awful person. And really, that's not owning your sin. If you're like, if you get busted for something, you're like, oh, I'm just a horrible person. It's just, oh, what, what do you expect? That's not you owning your sin. That's simply you just blowing it off, right? Oh, I can't be expected to do anything because I'm a broken person. That's not the kind of sin that we're talking about owning. That's just you being a jerk and blowing off sin and keep being in a fight. So if you're in a fight with your spouse, you're like, oh, I'm just horrible. What do you want from me? You did not fix anything. You made it worse. Okay, a little tip. So one way when we talk about sin is just to blow it off. Oh, of course we're all sinful. None of us is perfect. Well, that's not going to help us move the ball forward. The other thing that we do is we have such anxiety about our sin. We don't want anyone to know who we really are. And this is where we get in trouble because we all come to church and we all look so beautiful. I cannot tell you the amount of people who come to my office and say, I have such a problem. I don't know if Mern Covenant can be my church because my life is in such turmoil is such a disaster, and I can't even sit in the pews next to all these beautiful people. And I'm like, oh, if you even knew. Right? Us pastors, we sit around on Tuesdays, and we talk about you guys, and we pray for you. We read your prayer requests, and you're like, no, we are disasters. You don't have to be as scared, but we all present so well that no one feels free to share who they are. And it's in us. It's in us in big things and small things. I hate being with people um, and, and talking about m- music. That's my biggest insecurity. I picked up this guy from the airport. Is this, uh, he was a youth ministry professional, and he was someone I wanted to, to win over and be friends with. And, um, and so he starts talking. He's like, so what kind of music do you like? And of course I knew he liked some weird indie music, because that's what all the cool people like with all the bands that you can never, never know the names of. And I'm like, oh, what do I do? Well, normally, right, I would fake it, and I'd be like, oh, I like Coldplay. They're kind of cool, right? Like 10 years ago, right? So I would kind of throw out something, but I'd be so anxious to reveal who I really am because what if they think something of me? What if they think less? And, and, uh, you know, like, I'm going to try it out with this guy. I'm like, you know what? I like country music. I said it. It was so free. (laughs) And not like good classy country music of like the 70s and 80s. I'm talking just dirty, like poppy, gross country music that is not even music anymore, but I love it. It feels so good to me. And I love it. He looked at me. He's like, Oh, and then we moved on. But we do that all the time with real stuff. We, we're so scared to say who we really are, what our real problems are, and so we cover it up. And when we cover it up, all we're doing is saying, oh, we don't get to really be friends. We don't get to really own stuff. You can only know the fake version of me. And so when we fake it and just go, what, I'm just, a, I'm just a horrible person, what do you want from me? Or when we pretend that we're just fine and we don't let people in, then we're going to forever be wrestling with sin. But if you can get that sin is not a bad word, if you can get that you are rebellious and broken and dirty and wrecked person and get that, 
There's such freedom because the person to your right, the person to your left, we are all broken and wrecked people. And the second we can stop pretending with each other, the second we can stop being so perfect with each other, and we can just own our garbage, all of a sudden we can begin to be in right relationship with God, in right relationship with each other. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is in Romans chapter 7. This is Paul who wrote the Bible, who's perfect Paul, right? He's not this Paul, but other Paul, um, who wrote the Bible. He says this, So I find this law at work in me. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see this other law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin that was worked within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And when we can own our sin, when we can go, I am a flawed person. I am a broken person. My life is not perfect. My relationships are not perfect. I'm selfish and broken, and I have pride and my ego, and I have all this junk that's all consuming me. Who is going to save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. It is through Jesus. There's not enough I can do to fix who I am. There's not enough I can do to cover up who I am. And we need to realize that we are estranged from God. Our sin, our rebellion, our garbage has put a huge barrier between us and God. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came. He came as a baby to reconcile us to God. Uh, Jesus tells a story in Luke 15 about, right, that the shepherd, he leaves the 99, he's like, you guys are good, and he goes out to find the one. Like, statistically, it doesn't make sense. You should write off the one. But Jesus doesn't write off the one. He goes, and he brings us back. So in Christ, God has reconciled us to himself. It goes on in 2 Corinthians, it says this. Um, Do you have the next slide, Jim? Sorry. It says, For we therefore are God's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. This is what's incredible. Once we've said yes to Jesus, once we own our garbage, once we're like, yep, I'm a broken person, God, please forgive me and restore me. And our relationship with God is reunited. We don't have, God doesn't just say, great, you're fine, and just kind of stay at the kids' table. He invites us to the big kid table and says, you are my partners. You are my body. You are my co-laborers. You are my ambassadors. The only way that this whole world is going to know about the good news, that you are reconciled to God, is if you go out and tell people. We, the church, are the ambassadors of God. We are the ones who bring goodness and mercy and forgiveness and grace. That is our job, and that is our calling. And we think about what is our stance towards the world, and it is awful and horrifying that this, the stigma that we have, that our stance of the world is to be the condemners of the word, world, to be the judgmental people of the world. And what's so funny is, like, the, the pendulum's gone the other way. It's not just that we condemn anymore, we're judgmental. If you watch Facebook, Christians really aren't out there condemning and being judgmental anymore. It's like all the cool Christians who are condemning and judging the the judgmental Christians, right? We just love judging people. It is in us. It is everyone loves to judge other people and condemn other people. We do it all the time. But as Christians, we are not to be those people. As Christians, we are, the, we are the, to be the people who bring grace, who bring mercy. We are the ambassadors. There is conflict between God and others, and it is our job to bring people together. God has given us the authority, has given us the power, and the call. We sit at the big kids' table, and that is our task, that we are now ambassadors of reconciliation. 
And here's what's incredible about reconciliation, is that reconciliation grows exponentially. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells this parable of the unmerciful servant. And basically the gist of the story is this. There's a guy who owes the king gazillions of dollars, and he, there's no way that he can recover or repay it. And so he begs, oh God, or hey, king, please don't kill me. I'm so sorry. I can never repay this. What am I going to do? And the king says, it's okay. I'll absorb the cost. You're forgiven. And he's like, yes, I'm not going to die and go in jail. And he goes off and celebrating only to find the guy who owes him 10 bucks. He's like, where's my 10 bucks? And he's like, oh, I don't have 10 bucks. I don't have it. Will you please forgive me? He's like, no, guards, take this guy away. And he takes him away. And the king's like, what in the world? And you can just see Jesus is telling the story. He's so offended. He's so upset at God's people who have been forgiven so much and yet cannot even forgive a small offense from somebody else. It is so offensive to God. And the deal with reconciliation is that it grows exponentially because if you are in right relationship with someone else, if you have been forgiven so much, all of a sudden it's actually easier to forgive somebody else. If I've been forgiven $10,000, I can for sure give, forgive someone $1. When I own that I'm a sinful and wretched and messed up person, when I can actually reflect and think about all the ways that God has forgiven me, the huge list of things that God has forgiven and is forgiving me for, all of a sudden I'm so much slower to just crush somebody else. If I'm not reflective about my own junk, then I'm only offended by other people. And I'm so quick to call guards, take that person, take them away. God, judge that person. And we forget that we are to pass on God's grace to others. And here's what's incredible. Because we're all made in the image of God, all of us, whether you're a Christian, you love Jesus or not, every single person is made in the image of God, which means every single person longs for reconciliation. Everybody longs for reconciliation. And as Christians, I think our task is not simply to help people know and love God. We're going to go and make sure we we tell people about God and they can be reconciled to God, which is great. That's noble. It's part of our deal. But I think part of our task is to find ourselves in whatever context, at work, at school, with our friendships, in our families. Our job as ministers of reconciliation is to bring reconciliation. We now need to become the mediators in conflict and in brokenness. That is our job because we have been reconciled. Reconciliation grows exponentially. And how cool if we as Christians, as we as Marine Covenant, could so get that. Think about that. That's 400 people who are going to be like spreading reconciliation and love all throughout our county. So our job is to find reconciliation in people, in people groups, in cultural situations. That is our task. We don't need to defend anymore. We don't need to fight for our rights anymore. Instead, we must fight for reconciliation. Okay, so in Christ and in Christmas, God's reconciled us to himself, which is good news, but we have to own our sin and garbage. But once we do, we now take on the mantle. We are ambassadors of reconciliation. That is our task. That is our job. And when we do that, we realize that reconciliation grows exponentially. All right, I have three quick takeaways, and then we're going to hop into communion and the rest of our time together. So you're thinking, that's really great, that's good Bible study stuff, but what in the world do we do from here? Well, reconciliation is awful, and it is challenging, because it is costly. So we just have to own that it is costly. And here's the first takeaway, that love always initiates reconciliation. The king comes with love. He initiated reconciliation. Think of how offended God must be by humanity by the dream he had for humanity and all the ways that it's gone wrong. And yet God, through love, humbly comes 
and makes a way. God initiates reconciliation. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, it says this, that we love because he first loved us. So you think God loved us first. God initiates with us first. And because God initiates with us first, then we can go out and love other people. People who have not experienced love, people who have not experienced grace, they don't even have that muscle. They do not know what to do about forgiveness and brokenness. It is not in them. But those who have been loved develop the muscle for love, and love initiates reconciliation. Now, um, what's interesting, if you think of the last fight, the last fight that you had with somebody, and how in the world it got resolved, and the way that it almost always gets resolved with people I know, it's the person who has the bigger heart of love. The person who owns and loves the other person more, more emotionally. Right? If you're like, oh, it's always that person, then you just need to own. That person actually loves you more. If it's always you, like, you love that person more. You have taken on the body of Christ, the, the mantle of reconciliation, and love always initiates. And it is so costly to initiate. But if you want reconciliation, you need to know that the person who loves is the person that initiates. And why is it so hard to initiate? Why is it so hard to be the person to fix a relationship, to fix a brokenness, to fix fight? And that's because it is so costly. And so in John chapter 15, verse 13, it says this, that love, greater love is this than to lay down one's life for another. That love lays down its life. If you want to really love somebody, Really loving someone is laying down your life. And I think I would jump in front of a truck for almost anybody. I just think that's such a noble way to die. I will jump in front of a truck, no problem. But that's easy. Jumping in front of a truck is so much easier than laying down my pride and my ego, my life, the things that I'm holding on to. When I'm in a fight, when I'm in a conflict, those things that I'm holding on to, laying those down is so costly. And Jesus is saying, greater love is this than to lay down your life. I love in Philippians, you have this picture where Jesus, who is God, he's going to be worshipped for all of eternity in heaven, and yet came as a humble servant and obeyed God even to death on the cross. He deserved everything and yet humbly died to everything. If God's willing to do that, if we are to be, take on the mantle of Christ, then it is our job as ministers of reconciliation to take on that mantle to lay down our life. All right, one last thing. This isn't biblical, but I just think it's a good tip. Parents, this is on you. We all want the prodigal son story. We all love our kids. We all want to be at the edge of the property waiting for our dumb kids to get their heads out of their butts and come home. (laughs) It's a good story. It's a biblical story. But love, big love, Huge love, God-sized love, is Jesus leaving the 99 and going out and running after it. Parents, we have so much power. We have so much authority. And there's seasons that we have to leverage it and leverage it appropriately. But at some point, that line in the sand, at some point, that estrangement crushes our kids. We have to be the ones that initiate reconciliation. Maybe not when they're 15. At 15, we've got to work some other stuff out. But if your, parents, if your kids are grown and there's a, a distance between you and your kids, it's on you. Every movie, even Footloose, I just watched that. It's not a Christmas movie, but it's a great movie. Um, <laughs> the parents have the power. And they need to model that God who had the power gave up his power 
to work towards reconciliation. I love that, 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 that picture from Home Alone, right? Same thing. The, the dad gives up his power, works up, and, and has this conversation with his kid. So it's not really biblical. It's not really a Bible passage thing. But if we want to love initiates, love lays down its life, which means that those of us with power in most relationships as parents have to do that for others. So, of course, I'm preaching this week and um, talking about reconciliation, which means how fun that this is the week that Katie and I get a knockdown, drag-out fight. So fun. So we, uh, on Tuesday, we have a miscommunication because it happens, and, uh, and I can just feel like my, my blood pressure just rising. It is rising in me. And partly I'm, like, upset because we're having this fight that I'm upset about, and partly I'm like, and I'm preaching on this on Sunday. And normally I'm like, let's just kind of let it, let it ride. You know, most fights, if we just let it ride a few days, we'll come back together because we're in love and it's all good. But because I'm preaching on reconciliation, I'm like, I got to get this figured out because I got to finish my sermon. Now I'm going to stand up here and preach if I don't figure this thing out. And, um, and what's interesting is here we are sitting on the couch, arms folded, heated. Mostly me. Kay's like all love and grace. She's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I'm, but here we are on the couch, facing, facing, not facing each other, and we are in conflict. Our relationship is broken. And we have really two options. One is to move out, end our marriage. And two is to turn toward each other and reconcile. And what's interesting is, however you treat that moment, you're moving one way or the other. You may not immediately move out, You may not even immediately reconcile, but you are always moving one way or the other. And in that moment, those are are the end results of the two options that happen. Move out or be reconciled. And only because my wife is so precious, because she loves Jesus and loves me way more than I love Jesus, way more than I love her, that she's willing to sit in all of my garbage, in all of my ways that I've offended her, and she initiates she forgives first. And because of her love, because of her initiation, because God has done such a work in her, I'm able to stop and realize what a butt I'm being and ask for forgiveness and work it out. We all have those kind of relationships. We all have that kind of conflict. And the reason why we need to know and love Jesus is not so that someday we go to heaven, which is super great, but the reason why we need to know and love Jesus is because when we know and love Jesus, we know that we are broken people. We know that we are sinful people. We know that we can be total jerks and losers and awful people. We know it. It is in us. And because God has forgiven us, and because my wife is so much more aware of that than me, she's able to get through her junk so much faster than me and able to extend that to me. And because my wife knows and loves Jesus, she's able to know and love me. Because I know and love Jesus, I'm able to know and love art. You know, like this is, I love you, art. So we need to know and love Jesus. And we need to realize that the king comes with love. We are in broken relationship with God. We're in broken relationship with each other. Christmas only highlights that. But maybe this Christmas doesn't have to be like every other Christmas. Maybe this Christmas, this is the Christmas where God's people can step out And realize that they have been saved by grace. That the king has loved them first. Has reconciled them to God first. And in doing so, has allowed us to be ministers of reconciliation. Has called us to then extend love and grace to others. So in a few weeks, you're going to have a Christmas dinner. 
and you're going to have people sitting around there, and some are going to be weird, and like Uncle Eddie. Some are going to be in broken relationship. But may, as we gather, realize that we are also gathering around the communion table. For it is the communion table, the feast of God, where God says he prepares a place and he invites all of his people. And he doesn't invite all of his people. He invites all of the world, no matter how broken you are, no matter how estranged you are, no matter how much distance there is between you and God, he has made a table. You've broken something that cannot be unbroken. And he knew that. And so instead, he said, this is my body. It is broken for you. You cannot repay it. It is broken for you. Take and eat. In the same way, after dinner, he took the cup, and he poured it out, and he says, this cup, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant. You are a sinful and broken people. So own it. Accept God's brokenness for you, God's forgiveness for you, so that maybe you then can extend that grace and mercy to other people.